But I think if we actually take Jesus at his word and believe that what he's offering us is the good life, we begin to change the way that we've oriented our lives. We've got this picture of the good life. And then what happens, whether we know it or not, is we begin reorienting our lives towards that picture. And I think what revival in the South Bay looks like, maybe it's a pouring out of speaking in tongues and miraculous. Maybe it's all of that, but it's not less than us changing what we are orienting our lives towards. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode in our Surviving the South Bay podcast series. I was so excited to sit down with Brittany Park, who is a pastor at Remembrance Community Church in Lamita. Brittany is an old friend. I've known her for a long time, and we get into all of that, but we spend a lot of time talking about the good life. What is the good life? What is your version of the good life? And how has the South Bay tricked you into thinking that you are living the best possible life? It is just seriously such a wonderful conversation. It's so fruitful, and Brittany is incredibly smart, and so she brings a lot of scripture, a lot of personal insight and a lot of wisdom into this conversation. And so I am so thankful for her time. We hope you enjoy these conversations. We have a lot of really good ones coming up. But until then, we'll see you next week and every single week after that. I am so excited. When we started crafting this series, I was thinking to myself, I had a list and I gave it to Sean. And I think I mentioned this on a previous episode, but I had like a list of names and your name was on there. And he was like, do you think she'll do it? And I was like, I hope. I hope. And then I emailed you and you basically sent me an email of like, here's my life right now. Mm-hmm. And it was busy and complex and had so many things in it. And I was just kind of reading between the lines. I was like, okay, so is there a but coming? <laughs> like, but I'd love to. And there was. And you said, I'd love to. And so I've been waiting with a lot of anticipation, a lot of excitement for this. I'm sitting here with a, a friend I haven't seen in a very long time, but someone I think about often, someone who crosses my mind, it's Brittany Park, Nay Fenwick. Mm-hmm. Now, how often are people coming up to you and saying, oh, Nay Fenwick? Uh, you know, pretty often. <laughs> <laughs> or people don't know that I am, I was Brittany Fenwick, that we are one in the same. Okay. So that's, that's a good question. I've never experienced this as a man. Mm-hmm. I am married, did not have to take a last mm-hmm. name. Is that an experience for you? That's like frustrating when people are like, Oh, you're married. You have a last name, a new last name. Or were you like, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, no, it doesn't matter. I don't, you know, there's, there's a lot of things, small things that we can sweat as women. Uh, my last name changing isn't one of them. Brittany, I've known you for a while. You were a youth leader, impact leader at Rolling Hills when I was a student. Yeah. And it was really fun to get to know you in that way. But our paths have been parallel in some sense. I was sharing with Nikki or maybe someone else recently that you are a very academic person, a very smart person, somebody who I think is really brilliant with the text and with ministry, but also somebody who is very relational. Mm. And I think that's probably what makes you a really good pastor and a good candidate for this podcast series. I've talked about you a lot. I would like to hear you talk about yourself. Give us the 40,000 foot view of Brittany Parknay Fenwick. Who are you? How did you come into ministry? If you're not from the South Bay, where are you from? How did you get involved here? And then tell us a little bit about your current ministry context and your current life context. Yeah, so I'm born and raised South Bay, which is a blessing and a curse, I think, in some ways. It was a great place to grow up, but a lot of tensions there that we maybe will touch on Mm -hmm. in in our time together. But grew up in the South Bay, grew up in a Christian home, didn't have any ounce of desire to be in vocational ministry. I think if a lot of people knew me, probably even at the time when I started on uh, youth ministry staff at Rolling Hills, I think they would have been surprised that this Mm. would be the trajectory of my life. And yet in hindsight, I can just see really clearly that the Lord, he had to sneak attack me 
me to get me Ugh. where he wanted me because I would have gone kicking and screaming had I known. My journey into ministry, into pastoral ministry in particular, it really actually started at the same time that I met you. I graduated from Biola University and all of my friends from the South Bay were doing impact staff at Rolling Hills <laughs> Covenant and they were like, you should do it. It's fun. And we've got like 50,000 kids and we need more leaders. And I was like, that sounds fun. And my younger sister, Chelsea Fenwick, was a junior high leader. And yeah. so I was like, you know what? I'll do it for a summer. And I loved it. I still know a lot of the girls that were in my on my houseboat that summer. Yeah. And I really loved it. And um, I don't know if you remember, it must have been your maybe your freshman or sophomore year. It was before the big change. Impact on Wednesdays used to be like at people's homes. Right. And so the big gathering was Sunday. And on Wednesdays, it was like, I remember Sean being like, yeah, just like come up with something like and, you know, lead your kids on Wednesday, do a group. And I was like, we don't have any like curriculum or content or he was like, no, do your own thing. And so I just did what I thought everyone else was doing. And I like created a year's worth of content Jeez. to Jeez. teach my, my impact girls, whatever it was, I was teaching them about the Bible. And, you know, I can remember a couple of our younger girls, like they were freshmen and they were chatting and I'm like treating it like it's a classroom and I'm <laughs> teaching them. And I remember actually talking to, to Sean and him, me telling him what I was doing, like, is that okay? And he was like, I just want you to know, like what you're doing isn't normal. Like that's not the way most of our leaders are approaching it. Um, and he wasn't saying it like I was doing something wrong or special, but just almost as like a filling me in that there was something unique going on there in me that that's what I wanted to do. So that was kind of my first taste of like, that's oh, cool. that's I really love cool. doing this. Yeah. That's really awesome. Does he know that? I think yeah. It, I, think I think his head would explode. I think we've talked about his it. Head was just, she, yeah. <laughs> she looks over at his office, which is 30 you know, millimeters. We've talked way. about it before. That was really the first time that I thought like, oh, I think I really like this ministry thing. And mm. then fast forward, I was helping uh, start a new ministry at another local church and met this guy who's now our lead pastor at the church that I'm at. And I helped him do a ministry at that church. And then we ultimately ended up planting our church, Remembrance Community Church in Lomita. And he was the second person that just kind of really saw something in me that was more than I realized and just gave me a lot of opportunity, asked me if I would help plant the church. And I came along and just thought I would help for a few months, get it going and our church is almost 12 years old now and crazy. it's been a wild ride. Yeah. Wow. So nothing I would have planned for myself, but looking back, I can see that there were some elements to how God's created me that really took other people seeing in me and, and calling forward and giving me opportunity that kind of led me to where I am today. You mentioned something when you talk about your first season as an impact leader, you know, making a year's worth of curriculum, Sean telling you that's not normal. Do you think that you looked at ministry as this is an intellectual thing or was it the relationship? Like, I want to pour into these girls and I think this is the best way to do that. Yeah, I think that I had, you know, while while still being a, a dumb 20-something year old making questionable choices half the time, I think I genuinely really had fallen in love with Jesus. Mm. Um, and I had genuinely seen his love for me and his grace for previous choices and rejection of him and wandering and all of those things. I had just seen how powerful that actually was. And a lot of it was just my own waywardness in the high school years. And I just so badly wanted to help them not make my own mistakes and help them fall in love with Jesus a little bit earlier than I did. And so I think part of it was I loved the Bible and I loved studying the Bible, but it was much more not purely academic. It was relational and formational. I wanted them to fall in love with Jesus. As you've planted this church, I know it was 12 years ago, which is so, so yeah. long. When you think about that first season of planting a church, was it more intellectual or was it more relational? Like, did it feel like that first season mm. of impact or did it feel something brand new? Um, it felt something brand new, but probably because I didn't want to do it. <laughs> 
um, the, the sneak attack. The sneak attack. That's I really didn't want to. So our, our lead pastor, Kenny Keating, he basically asked me if I would help. And I had moved to Seal Beach to go to Talbot, to go to seminary, not because I had zero plans to be a pastor, zero plans to work in ministry. I just wanted to study the Bible. Mm. I was in my late 20s. I was single. I was like, you know what? All of my friends are married and having kids. I can do whatever I want. I'm going to just pick up the most expensive hobby I can think of (laughs) and go to seminary for fun. And so I was not involved in a church and didn't want to really do the church planting thing with him. And Mm -hmm. the Lord just, I I just felt like if I didn't go, it would be disobedience, even though I didn't want to, my heart didn't change for it. And so I think the approach was not academic or relational. It was like obligational. (laughs) And then my heart just like really, I mean, I I feel like often our our hearts end up following obedience Mm. and I feel like that's what happened. When you graduated from Talbot, was there a job slated for you or were you just like, all right, I did it. I was obedient. I, when I started Talbot, there was no, nothing. I was waiting tables to go to school and I was hoping to do it in two years. And then after my first year was when we planted the church. So I went down to part-time. So I already had the job at the church. Very, very, very part-time. Didn't think I would stay. By the time I finished seminary, we were three years into the church plan. Oh, okay. And it was obviously, you know, my, my primary job at that point. And, and you felt like, okay, this was all worth it for this moment. I was really Glad that I s- surprise had a theological education if I was going to start pastoring people and and ultimately begin preaching and all of that. I was I, it was a helpful tool to have in my back pocket that I didn't plan for. But do you think day one Talbot Brittany, if you would have told her what was yeah. going to happen, do you think she would have believed you? No, no, and she would have run the opposite direction entirely. <laughs> what do you think she would have said? I want to be this instead of that. I think I wanted to teach in some capacity. I came from a long line of churches and theological opinions that didn't allow a lot of opportunity for women in ministry that seemed to fit with the things that I got excited about and then the things that I ultimately would be told I was gifted with. So I don't think it was on my radar to do church ministry in a way that felt enlivening to me. Yeah, I think I just thought there's there might be something for me, but I also didn't feel like an academic. And so I felt like you do church work or you like teach at a Bible college or a university. And I didn't really feel like I would do either of those things. And now I do both of those yeah, things. I was just going <laughs> to say, I'm so sorry to tell you, but you do both of those yes, things. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's a little bit of the journey. Academically, you're teaching, you said. Where, yeah. where do you teach? What do you teach? And how's that been for you? Yeah. So quick plug. I teach for Eternity Bible College. Quick plug. Quick plug. Offer um, code uh, Nathanwick yes. for 20% <laughs> off your first semester. Definitely. I think had I known about Eternity back when I went to Talbot, I may have gone that route route because now it's fully online and it's super cost effective. And I just wanted to study the Bible. I didn't need the whole like on campus in classroom experience. And granted, I was a woman. And so I didn't get to build any relationships with my professors. I didn't leave with any colleagues or professor relationships. I didn't need any of that. I think I would have loved a more cost effective experience. So I'm teaching for Eternity Bible College now, and it's just a wonderful opportunity. If any of your people are like, man, I would love to be theologically educated, but seminary or going to a Bible university feels just overwhelming, I would say check out eternity.edu. I love it. There's just certification programs and all kinds of resources for people to graduate without debt, but with like a robust theological education and it's non-denominational. So you get just exposure to a lot of different kinds of thinking. It's really fun. It's been really fun. It's all online. It's all online. There you go. That's a good plug. And you know, post 2020, everything's all online now. You can just kind of rock and roll I've got got young college students and I've got empty nester moms who just all 
always wanted to study the Bible and are doing it now. What do you teach? What classes do you teach? I teach uh, a couple of Hebrew module classes. So I just got done teaching former prophets, which is Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Currently teaching a Latter Prophets 1 class, which is some minor prophets and Isaiah. And then in the spring, I'll be teaching a general letters class and a Galatians class. That is too much. I do not very envy you. I, I mean, <laughs> just the way that you have to put on a different brain academically than you do pastorally. Yeah. That must be sometimes challenging. Yeah, I do think that though I get to bring that pastoral piece to the uh, students. Um, it's not an it's not trying to be an overly uh, stuffy of college, and so there's I, I feel like it's a good fit for me. I love that. Yeah, good fit for you. Well, speaking of good fit, just real quick before we jump into some specific South Bay stuff. Yeah, you're a mother. I am a mother. That's that's a journey. That's a yeah. whole different whole different story. But yes. just really quickly, tell us a little bit about that because yeah. I think probably some people probably follow you on mm-hmm. social media and they maybe were a little bit mm-hmm. seeing what was going on. But I think that's a big part of your identity now. Yeah, uh, and I, I think it's really special. And I think it, I would just like to hear the story. So tell us about being a mom. Yeah, I actually did want to mention this too. So we we adopted our daughter in January. She was born um, on January fifteenth. So she's going to be a year in a couple of weeks. Which I was going to say this, this is ne- last January. Last January. Could yeah. you imagine your like it's January. Today's January yeah, yeah, 3rd yeah. or whatever. She You're was like, born yeah. yesterday. Um, <laughs> she was born last January on the 15th and we drove out to Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got there by the 16th and um, her birth mother placed her in our arms and we got to take her home. And there, I mean, that's a whole nother 15 hour podcast. Right, we could right, talk right. about that story and just the incredible uh, goodness and of the goodness of God and just the hardship of humanity um, all intermingled. But one of the things that I just wanted to mention was, gosh, we were just so supported by our community community and our church family, but also Coastline. Um, I know that Sean had, you know, posted about our family and, oh, yeah. and I think it was for the the Lent practice last year. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys had included our adoption fund as one of the ways to give. And there were people that I know are probably a part of Coastline because I don't know who they are mm-hmm. that gave and people that are part of Coastline that I do know who they are and gave. And man, it was just a beautiful experience. And um, I just felt loved. Our family felt loved by the Coastline family as well. So love that way to go Coastline. Thank Love you. That. And this whole series that I've been getting to sit with other pastors, it's not just Coastline, but it's really fun to hear other churches talk about other churches. Yeah. And again, and this will probably come up, but I think especially in the South Bay, some of the carryover of like tribalism and exclusivity it comes into the church yes. and you think, well, my church is the only church. And, you know, yeah. and so to hear that, I think that's very, very special. What is your daughter's name? Naya. Naya. Very sweet. Well, that's yes. awesome. And shout out Coastline. What was your experience like in the South Bay ministry wise post Rolling Hills? What would you say like your first experience of like, oh, this is what it's like to do ministry in the South Bay. What did that feel like or what was that? So the ministry that I was helping as a volunteer at Kings Harbor was a once a month Friday night service that we called the Remembrance, which Mm. is what our church name came out of. And it was once a month and it was kind of targeted for uh, maybe a younger crowd who might not be so apt to show up on a Sunday to church to offer something a little bit more accessible. And it was great. We had a lot. It was really great. It was a wonderful season. We had a lot of young people and we had a lot of young people who I think exactly that wouldn't have come on a Sunday and came with friends 
friends on a Friday night. It was an alternative to going down to Hermosa, you know, it was somewhere where you could be like, hey, we've got something different to do tonight. Let's go do that something different. I, I think probably my experience of ministry in the South Bay at that time was a bit different than the way that I experience it now because we were working with so many young people. Yeah. I mean, we're a bit strange in that we don't have a college here. So we have junior yeah. colleges. Um, we've got people that stay. We've got people that go. And so the younger crowd, um, it was a lot of people, I think, that were a little bit more, I don't want to generalize, but like maybe le- maybe a bit more aimless, like weren't going yeah. off to university, weren't sure what they wanted to do, maybe going to Harbor or El Camino and trying to figure it out. And yeah, I think that looked looked a lot different in that context than it looks now being a pastor to a wider demographic. Yeah, there's a little less aimless people when you have families or yes. adults. Yeah. But I think that's also really interesting. What do you think you learned in that season working with, I don't want to keep saying aimless people, but people who are, have a little bit less direction, a less less vision for what they want in life. What did you learn there that you've carried over with you now? I think, I think we're actually all a bit aimless. I think all of us are looking for the road to the good life. And to varying degrees, we maybe have convinced ourselves we've figured it out. But I think younger people are just more honest about their confusion about what that road looks like. And with that vulnerability and that honesty, you can really go in and work. Yeah. But inversely, I find when people are a little bit less apt to be open, yeah. you can work in that as well. Yeah. And so this actually is a great transition into kind of what I really want to talk about, which is this idea of spiritual strongholds that we see in the South mm-hmm. Bay. And so, Brittany, when you think about struggles that are specific to this community, what comes to mind? And then what do you think about the South Bay makes it so that particular thing is so prevalent? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think they're a little bit more well hidden in the South Bay because we have here, I think what we could call the pretty good life. Yeah. Or the good enough life. We are insul- We can be easily insulated from a lot of inconveniences. I mean, the weather being a big one, right? Like we don't have to really experience seasons or the inconvenience. I mean, it rains for two days and everyone goes into lockdown, right? <laughs> Everyone's social media is like under blankets on the couch on a Tuesday at two because it's raining. We don't have to be acclimated to those kinds of changes. And I think for the most part in the South Bay, if you're living here, we definitely have people that are struggling financially but this area is a more affluent area. And so there's a lot of comfort and there's a lot of yeah being able to insulate ourselves from inconveniences. And so I think when we think of spiritual strongholds, we can end up thinking like, what, what are the spiritual forces or, and like really like think of it as um, maybe over demonize it. But I think the subtleties can be just as dangerous. And I think being convinced that we have the good enough life or the pretty good life really can hold us back from the good life that Jesus offers just as much as, you know, seemingly more demonic strongholds elsewhere. Well, it reminds me of the screw tape letters a little bit mm. where there's just kind of like poke a little bit. Yep. You know, Sean also says this a lot, like Satan has a plan for your life as well. And it's mm-hmm. not often the, everything's going to fall apart all at once. Yes. It takes time and yeah. things chip away. Mm-hmm. That's so fascinating. I haven't thought about that as like some more of the subtleties of the South Bay and, mm-hmm. and weather being one of them. Mm-hmm. I never, I, that's a really, really insightful point. Do you find that when it rains, people don't come to church? Yes. <laughs> Or it's just like a little bit cold. Yeah. I mean, you guys didn't even meet inside, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's slightly cold. And we're like, no. Can't. Let's pray that people get out of bed, you know. We'll set up 50 less chairs today because we think people are going to be cold. Your church is in Lamita. Yes. What would you say like the version of comfort is for somebody who comes to Remembrance who lives in Lamita? I think it's, I I think it can be the same as across the South Bay, like, you know, the the more we have in some ways, the more comfortable we are, but we can become just as comfortable in our own context. Mm. Right. And so I think we've 
we've got across the South Bay, Lomita included, I think we've got a casualness in the South Bay that comes from being a part of a beach culture. And I think that that's true in Lomita as much as it's true in Manhattan Beach, where there's just a casual way that we approach life. Doesn't mean that we don't have people that work really hard or are really driven, but we're casual. You come to church and flip flops and cutoffs and in the middle of winter, you know, because we don't have one. And there's just a casual approach to most things. And I think that that's true of church and of following Jesus. And I think that that's just as true in Lomita as it is in Redondo. So you kind of answered my question, but I want to ask, like, what does a casual faith look like? And I, I guess I'm wondering, how often do you see that the casualness of the South Bay carries over to my faith? I think that we have a casual approach to most things as being part of a beach culture. You know, we're in L.A., so we're still image conscious. But we're Mm -hmm. slower pace. We're very casual. And I think that the way that that bleeds over into our faith is we have a pretty good life without it. We have a pretty good life without taking Jesus too seriously. And so I think we have a little bit of an issue. We can have a little bit of an issue of taking Jesus just seriously enough to be religious and not taking Jesus so seriously that it's inconveniencing our lives. I mean, that is put that on a t-shirt that is really (laughs) really insightful and I think that that is again that subtlety that you're talking Mm -hmm. about like I go to church Mm -hmm. like I'm part of I'm part of a community Mm -hmm. and that's coming up a lot in this these conversations like well I'm part of a church just like my kids are part of sports just like I'm part of this friend group and my family does this vacation every year like we we kind of have this a la carte life yeah and it makes it feel like everything's on the same level nothing's Mm -hmm. that much more important than the other thing and then church gets lumped into that and faith gets lumped into that and what's really challenging is convincing people that that's not the good life yes just because we live here and you have so many amazing things that doesn't actually mean your life is good right you know what's so interesting um i know that part of the sort of scriptural jumping off point for this uh series is talking about the sins of jeroboam yeah I actually, very timely, I just, my class just went through Amos yesterday. And Amos is, you know, this minor prophet, nine chapters, short. If you survey the general Christian and ask them what Amos is about, they're like, ooh, I didn't know that that was in the Bible. <laughs> like, isn't that a popular name we name our kids these days? Yeah. But what's really interesting is at the time of Amos, it's Jeroboam the second, and mm. Israel is seems to be flourishing. He's got some military victories. They've gained some, some more land. On the surface, it looks like they are thriving, and yet he is mentioned in scripture as one of the worst yeah. kings. And it seems like, but there's affluence and there's blessing and there's, you know, military accomplishments and they're increasing the land. All of those things seem to be indicative of Israel living the good life. And yet it's not true. And what Amos ends up basically speaking out against is like, you've gotten so comfortable in your affluence and you've been able to insulate yourself from some of the things that end up driving us to our knees that you have neglected the heart of God and speaks out against injustice and neglecting the poor, trampling on the poor. Um, And it's just really struck me as I think have very similar to our problems here where we, we conflate doing well with the blessing of God. And that's not always true when we just see it on the surface materially or monetarily. And I, I, I think that, that we could learn a lot from Amos uh, in the South Bay today about what it looks like to follow Jesus and what blessing looks like versus what 
lack of blessing looks yeah. like. I'm really glad that you mentioned Amos and, and the prophets because that's kind of been, as I've been a little bit more behind the scenes in the sermon series, what keeps ringing in my brain, and I think I've mentioned this every episode, is uh, The Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann. Have you ever read mm, that book? I have not. Oh my goodness. I just need to I give, love Walter Brueggemann. I need now. to give like a million copies of that book out. But he talks about me. the role of the prophet is to criticize and energize. Mm. Criticize the dominant cultural narrative and mm. energize your community to live an alternative mm. life. Uh, and I think that's kind of what we're hoping people do in this sermon series. We can mm-hmm. kind of criticize from a perspective of we love this place and we care mm-hmm. about this place and we care about the people. We want to energize our communities. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about because one big sin of the South Bay is individualism. Oh, yeah. Where it's, you know, my family, my tribe, my yes. people and that this is my beach. This is my restaurant. Mm-hmm. This is my whatever. So I wonder as a pastor, how do you get people to think communally? And then how do you get mm-hmm. people to think communally specifically about sin? Yeah. I mean, so if we're going to if we're going to think about and talk about communal sin and ultimately communal repentance, I think we get we we have to get into the prophets, right? Like that's yeah. where we see that being called out and the repentance being pushed forward for the people. And so I think of I think of King King Josiah. The the people of Israel had fallen so far away from Yahweh and from his design for them and were experiencing the consequences of living outside of covenant blessing. And King Josiah, one of his priests, Hilkanah or something, finds the, the Torah and Josiah reads it and he's like, Oh my gosh. Oh yes, yes, yes. Like, okay, I know we haven't yeah. like there's this whole thing with Yahweh and we haven't been doing it. And he basically starts a revival in the people of Israel and is like, We've got to turn back. And so I really think that it has to start with leadership. I think wow. I think a lot of us as pastors, myself very much included, we are just as susceptible to the subtle temptations and draws away from the heart of God as any of our people. And so for me, I take very seriously the invitation to preach God's word to my, my congregation. And I need to deal with it with myself first yeah. before I can say it to them. I think when we as leaders, um, and I, I don't mean that as paid pastors, I mean, for those of us who have grown relationships with the Lord and have people that we are leading, whether it's our families or people around us, we need to sort of wake up to the invitations of God anew in order for us to be able to lead people to believe that those invitations are worth responding to. And I just think that we can, as leaders, can be just as easily lulled to sleep by the comforts that we have here in the South Bay. And we've got our problems. We've got bills to pay. We've got family issues. We've got health issues, all of those things. But we can really insulate ourselves from the need for a gooder life (laughs) than the pretty good life that we have here. Yeah. And then I want to invert that question as a pastor. How often are you thinking like, I need to be more in the community. I need to be more doing this thing. And and the reason I mentioned it's this, we're doing this thing in the series where like we're going to local businesses as Mm. like, we're part of the community. We we love the community. So for you, how do you strike that balance? How do you strike that balance of like, Oh, I, I struggle with these things but I'm not giving in, but I want to show you that I'm with you. I mean, so when I was first invited to preach for the first time at our church, um, it was a big deal. We hadn't had a woman preacher. We came from a church that didn't have women preachers. I was very aware of my inability to stand up there and be somewhere further along than a lot of those people. So I feel very, very grateful to be at a church where they really know me and I don't get it all right. And that is not a surprise to them. (laughs) And so I think just doing life with your people helps them to see that like you hopefully are are maybe trying a little bit harder than the average Joe. And part of that is like we've got our face in the Bible, presumably all week long, you know, studying and doing ministry. Um, but 
I, I hope that they just by interacting with me mm. and my family and our life can see that. But I think too, wanting to go, not just tell them, go out in the community and build relationships, but being intentional. I mean, before I had a baby, like going and working in a coffee shop to <laughs> yeah. build relationships with the owners and get to know people around. Um, we meet in a school. And so we've spent 12 years trying to invest in the school and build relationships that only really started to pay off after probably year six or seven. So trying to do those things with intention as we're trying to encourage our church to do those things with intention. That's a beautiful image of kind of the call to plant gardens, mm-hmm. right? And be in your community no matter what, no matter what it costs you, no matter what it looks like. You mentioned kind of like this idea of like revival. And I think that that is something that I really, I really am struck by because different people have different definitions of revival. Mm-hmm. So what would you say revival would look like specifically in the South Bay? Yeah. So I don't come from like a Pentecostal background. Right. <laughs> so I think I think when I hear the word revival, I think a little bit more in that way of thinking like, oh, it's going to be some sort of like Pentecostal outbreak that's going to happen. That doesn't tend to be the way that I think nor the way that I'm trained theologically. Different people will probably have different answers for this. But for me, when I think about revival, I mean, going back to King Josiah, like that we see a revival happen in the people of Israel. And that revival comes from encountering the word of God and responding to it. And the hinge is repentance. The hinge is recognizing there is a call and response that's being offered to me that requires me to acknowledge that I haven't been responding to that call and do something different. And I think if we think about revival in the South Bay, I mean, what does it look like to go from the pretty good life or the good enough life to the actual good life that Jesus offers? I think the good life that Jesus offers does not look like the good life on the surface. It's a cruciform life. No one wants to walk to the cross. No one wants to pick up their cross and march to their death. That is not the good life. It's not a great marketing plan for the church, right? No one wants to do that. But I think if we actually take Jesus at his word and believe that what he's offering us is the good life, we begin to change the way that we've oriented our lives. So for example, I think that, you know, this is probably true for a lot of places in the world, but specifically for the South Bay, I think a lot of us have a pretty similar idea of what the good life looks like. We've painted this picture in our head of what it looks like to reach the good life. And maybe it's, you know, a house on the avenues, which is so beyond my version of the good life. Like I can't even imagine being able to do that. But like maybe it's, you know, living in South Redondo and, you know, having, you know, your perfect Christmas cards with your 2.5 kids and your golden retriever and your kid goes to Rivera Hall and, you know, you go to Coastline Covenant because it's a great church and you take online classes at Eternity Bible College. (laughs) (laughs) We've got this picture of the good life. And then what happens, whether we know it or not, is we begin and reorienting our lives towards that picture. And I think what revival in the South Bay looks like, maybe it's a pouring out of speaking in tongues and miraculous, maybe it's all of that, but it's not less than us changing what we are orienting our lives towards. And I think if we really take Jesus seriously, if we begin to really believe that what he's offering us in all of our comforts and insulation from inconveniences, what he's offering us is a better life, the good life, a life of flourishing and wholeness. I think revival looks like reorienting our lives around that, meaning we actually take participation in the body of Christ way more seriously than I think we're accustomed to. Preach. We've got like an epidemic of extracurricular activities for kids. Back in my day, whether I resented it at the time, like we went to church on Friday night, which is like, 
I mean, this was Hope Chapel in the 90s, yeah. 80s and 90s, like a super cool thing to do. But then I got into high school and I resented that we had to go to church on Friday nights because there's other things I wanted to do. But I look back and my mom had oriented our family's life towards the picture of the good life that she believed was best for us. And I think it's not our parents' fault, but we've got a sports culture that has its own idea of the good life. And we let those sports cultures define the good life for us. And then we assimilate into it. And I think we have a problem of syncretism, which is uh, taking religious practices from all different religions and, and mushing them all together. It's a similar problem that Israel had. Sometimes they rejected Yahweh altogether, but oftentimes they just added other idols to Yahweh worship. And I think that's what we do. We worship at the altar of extracurricular activities. We worship at the altar of investment portfolios. We worship at the altar of things that we think will give us identity, security, safety, insulate us from anything that's uncomfortable or dangerous or, you know, unpleasant. And we reorient our lives to try to achieve this picture that looks actually nothing like the good life Jesus offers us. And then we find that we're riddled with anxiety and fear and we can't figure out why the path to the good life isn't also giving us a good internal life, a good spiritual life, a good mental life, a good physical life. Um, And I think it's just because we're subtly being deceived that good things are great things and ultimate things. Done. See you. Bye. Thanks for listening. And also, Brittany, you're my new pastor. So thank you so much for that. That is cool. It's fun to always, you know, sit with different pastors. And mm. when I first started doing the series, Megan was saying, look, I know that you take the podcast series or whatever, but just let them pastor you. Mm. Let yourself be pastored. And I've had so many awesome moments where I'm just mm. like, man, I'm so blessed and so struck by everything you're saying. And I just think as the youth would say, we just let you cook and you <laughs> just you just went for it. You, you kind of mentioned it. And I'm, I'm interested in your answer to this. What's the church's role in all of that? How does the church come alongside somebody or what is the church supposed to do to help people reorient their life? This could be a very long answer, but to to sum it up, I think we have to offer our people more than a program Mm. and more than a performance. We have to offer people a way to live a new life. And I think that does look like invitation to learning new practices and forming new habits. And I coming back to leadership, like I just think if we have not been changed to believe that there's a better way to reformat our schedules and our finances and our affections and our attentions, we just can't reasonably expect that anyone is going to believe us and follow us into that. And so I think the church should offer not a place to just get energized on Sunday morning, although that's helpful but a place to find rest and quiet and have our vision of the good life reformed in a way that is not just compelling, but honest. And I think sometimes our programs and our budgets can keep us from doing some of that. And I think that maybe is what revival resource revival might look like in the South Bay is how do we help people cultivate an inner quiet life that creates space to actually take Jesus at his word? I love that. My question was, what can I add? to the church to make it more (laughs) helpful. And you're like, we've been, probably should be doing less. I'm like, oh gosh, you're probably right. Way to convict me on that one. Okay. So my last question before we transition to the last thing is you've mentioned this several times, the good life, the good life, the good life. What is like the definition of the good life? Like someone's probably listening to this and saying Mm. like, I want a good life. Like, I think I have a good life, but you're, you're you're maybe teasing me into thinking that it's not so good. Yeah. What is the good life that Jesus offers? That's a great question. I wish I would have prepared for to have like a really great answer. You know, Jesus says that he has come so that we may have life and life abundantly. And I've thought, I feel like I spent a couple of years like wondering what that actually means. 
because I would look around and see people who had been Christians for 40, 50 years who had done all of the church things. They could check all of the religious boxes, all of the church tradition boxes. They gave, they served, they went to church on Sunday, they were going to small group. They did all the things that we tell them as pastors, here's what you should do. And their lives didn't seem like, I don't know that they would define their lives as the good life. And I just thought like, what are we missing? Like, why are we giving people this formula for this life abundantly? And they just feel guilty and overscheduled and they read the Bible and they don't understand. And so they don't read or they just keep reading out of compulsion and they just like aren't getting anything out of it. And, and I just really wrestled with the question of like, what actually is Jesus offering when he says life abundantly, which I think, you know, is what I'm referring to when I say the good life. And I think what it is, is not something that we can sign up for or programmatize or find a formula, which is what I'm always trying to do is like, how do I get the formula to get the results that I want? I think the good life is the life that is headed towards a recapturing of what it means to be fully human in the way that we were created to be fully human. The good life is a life lived under the care of the good king whose leadership we have rejected. And so we are met with all of this angst and anxiety and uncertainty and all of just the inner turmoil. And I think the good life is finding ourselves safe back under that care like we were created to be. That Sort of that recapturing of the Edenic vision of living life with Yahweh and finding that no matter what's going on around us, we're safe and there's hope and we can rest when the rest of the world is running around with like a chicken with its head cut off, we can find that we've got something a little bit more steadfast and sure to put our, our stake in. And that flows out into what it looks like to build relationships and have meaningful relationships with people and do a good job at our work and create homes that feel warm and welcoming. I mean, it, it really extends into every aspect of being human, but I think it starts from this inner place of experiencing life as we were created to be in communion with with God in a way that is actually producing the fruit of the spirit. And the good life is good for everybody. Yes. Like that flourishing life isn't just for you. And yeah, I think blessed to be a blessing. Yeah. It's and covenantal. I, th I think that if you're looking around at your life, like, is it the good life? Like, are the people around you living in the good life because of your good life? Yeah. Is the community around your church living a good life Yes. Because of yeah. your good life. We went to a covenant conference a couple years ago and we went to the church planning breakout and the woman said, if your church went under tomorrow, would your community even yeah. notice? Yep. And I think that's the good life. Yes. And what I hear you saying is it starts individual. It becomes communal. You integrate yourself in a church and then you become a blessing to your community. And yeah. it starts with you and your good life. Mm -hmm. What a word, Brittany Park. Come on now. Let her cook and she will. All right. So we are going to transition into how we've been ending all of these. We're calling it the locals only lightning round. Okay. Are you ready? I don't know. It's 11 questions. Okay. Kind of gut reaction. Okay. It's all South Bay related things. Okay. So we want to get a picture of your picture of the South Bay. So first question in the locals only lightning round. What is your favorite South Bay restaurant and what is your go-to order there? To be honest, I don't think we have the best restaurants in the South oh, Bay. Oh, called out. I, you know, I probably sushi is my favorite food and we are super fortunate in Lamita because we have the best sushi restaurant, Which Sushi is? Delight. Sushi Delight, where is that? Okay, it's on PCH in Lamita, Hidden Gem. It's the best sushi restaurant. But okay, it's so good. PCH in Lamita, that's a, a- A PCH and I don't know, Oak- Narbon. One of these. There's it's Lomita is like one square mile. It's very yeah. small. Go drive up PCH and you'll find it. Okay. That's a good answer. Number two, what is the best cup of coffee in the South Bay? 
I'm not a coffee snob, so I don't care so much about the best cup of coffee, but where I want to go and drink my coffee. Shout out my friends at Corridor Flow, also in Lomita. Where is the best breakfast burrito in the South Bay? Fanny's. You're not the only person who said that, but I do think you're wrong. Been eating them my whole life. Yeah. Fanny's is great. Yep. Number four, what local landmark or spot triggers the fondest memories for you and why? I think the um, the library down by Veterans Park in Redondo. Nice. We used to go there with my grandma. For all of you younger people, that used to be a library. Yeah. Um, and I can still like smell the car catalog when I walk by it. And yeah, a lot of fond memories in that's, that library. That's really special. I like that. Yeah. It's a wedding venue now. Yeah. You can go get married there if you'd like. Also, I think the building is like a hazard and could collapse at any minute from the earthquake. So you should go get married. But there. congratulations. Yeah. Can, <laughs> mazel tov. <laughs> uh, number five, share a lesser known restaurant or spot in the South Bay, something underrated. Uh, okay. Wow. I'm like really acting like a Lomita local right now, that's even great. though I grew up in Redondo. <laughs> Um, but there's a little Peruvian spot called Kotosh, also in Lomita, Pennsylvania and Lomita Boulevard. You know exactly um, where that one is. I know exactly <laughs> where that one is. Um, I didn't know. I had seen it forever and my husband knew what it was before we moved to Lomita. And then I came to find out it's like a very well-known restaurant and it's okay. a small little place, Peruvian food. It's so good. Yeah, I know where that is. That's okay. I got to check that gotta out. Check That's it awesome. out. Number six, what is one thing that you think the South Bay needs? Anything from a particular restaurant or store all the way over to ideological changes? Um, we need, I wouldn't have said this, um, like over a year ago, but we need more family friendly, like places where adults can like have good food and good drinks, like maybe get a beer or a cocktail and kids can like run around and be crazy. Yeah. I feel like the point, um, over in oh, like El yeah. Segundo, that's become like a cool spot to go because you can eat at the little outdoor Simsies place and the kids can run around, but that's quite far from yeah. Lomita for us. So more places like that where families can kind of congregate and the kids can be kids. And I know a lot of people <laughs> end up going to rock and Bruce because there's like a, you know, very small play structure. And so it makes parents feel like kids can be kids, but yeah. I think we need more places like that. I'm trying to think. The point's a good call. I think Brewery West is probably... Brewery West is another one. That's a good call. They can, there's space for them to roam there. Um, yeah, but spooky. Yeah, but you don't want to let them go too far. Yeah, there's a Grateful Dead <laughs> cover band that plays there a lot that's really good. Shout out Wall of Sound. Uh, <laughs> number seven, where is your go-to spot to watch the sunset? Uh, I mean, probably just like just before burnout, the end of, uh, what is it, Vista Del Mar. Mm-hmm. I used to live right there, and so oh, that's yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. the spot right at the end of that street. That's a good one. Number eight, what local event or festival do you look forward to the most and what makes it special? Oh man, I'm such a grandma. Like the words event and festival, I'm like, uh, those things happen. Those are those loud things that happen where you can't find parking. Yeah. Um, I honestly, I really like, and I liked it before I had kids. I really like like the Halloween stroll down in oh, the village. Yes, yes. I used to go with my best friend and her kids. Like, I mean, forever I went, their oldest just turned 13. So I've gone with them forever. So it was super fun getting to take Naya this year, but I love the Riviera village and I love when it kind of closes down the driving and you can kind of walk through with a bunch of people it's That's, super fun those are the best ones i yeah. love that number nine if you moved away and could only revisit the south bay for one day what is the one thing you'd absolutely have to do i'd have to go down to the esplanade and go for a walk perfect number 10 describe the south bay in three words beautiful frustrating home there you go beautiful frustrating home i, th- I think we could describe a lot of things like that yeah finally number 11 what is your hope or what is your prayer for the south bay That we would believe Jesus, not just believe in Jesus, but that we would believe him for what he offers us and look for opportunities to be changed, like Mm -hmm. to actually experience a different way of living that would affect and impact the rest of the people around us. Well, you have 
presented a very compelling vision of that today. You have given us a picture of what that could look like. And so I'm very thankful for you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really glad we got to get this uh, all set up. And uh, you're awesome. Congrats. Congrats on everything. Congrats on the, on the baby and the church and everything in between. And Thanks, I, Hunter. I hope our paths cross sooner than, than later next I'm time. I'm sure they will. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks.